You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Well, good morning, Red Tree. How is everyone this morning? It's good to see you guys this morning. Turn in your Bibles. There we go. Good morning. In case you didn't hear me. Uh, Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 7 this morning. We will be in um, verses 24 through 30 this morning. If you do not have a Bible, there are Bibles at the end of each row. Uh, Please feel free to grab one of those. Uh, We are going to uh, to get right into this this morning. Uh, Let me pray for our time and then we'll we'll read our text and then we'll we'll get going. Uh, Father, you are worthy. We are not. God, I am not worthy to to bring the word to you this morning, and we are unworthy to receive it without the Spirit working in our hearts to draw us to you. So, Father, we desperately need you to speak, and we desperately need you to move in our hearts so that we can hear. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to do that work. Because we know, as we have just sung and worshipped, you are a faithful and steadfast God to answer that prayer. And so we ask earnestly, and we ask diligently, and may that be the prayer continually through our time today as the word is preached. Lord, may that continue to dwell up in our hearts, and may that prayer be continually proclaimed as we go about this gathering. And may that be the drumbeat of our hearts, Lord, to seek you always. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. In chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark, verse 24, Mark says this, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. The encounter between Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman that we read about today is a stark contrast between the passage that Jesse preached out of last week. Last week's message revolved around uh, Jewish men and the law, and our story today is about a Gentile woman without the law. Very different. Now the tradition of the elders, as we learned last week, presupposes that there could be no salvation that's apart from the law. 
And they were so convinced of this that they did what, what Jesse had talked about last week. If you remember, they built a fence around the law. They built a wall around the Torah, if you guys remember that. They, they made it so that, they, they made laws so that they couldn't even come remotely close to breaking God's revealed law. They put that fence around. They made these man-made laws so they couldn't even come possibly close to breaking God's laws, which was preposterous when you think about it. And then there was all this business of being clean and being unclean. And the Jewish leaders were only concerned with, with the external appearances and the rituals of their faith. And they were convinced that they had caught Jesus on this, this ritual technicality because any rabbi would have been teaching the cleanliness laws. And he would have been asking people, and especially his followers, to abide by those cleanliness laws. And they thought that they had tripped Jesus up because he wasn't doing that. As the disciples came and they were not washing, they called him out on that. And they thought they got him because as we know there's a rising tension. There's a rising conflict that's going on in, in Mark as, as we move towards the cross They're finding more and more things that they're trying to trip Jesus up so they can ultimately crucify him. And what the the Pharisees did not comprehend, and and this is one thing that stuck out this week to me that Jesse had mentioned, and I want you to listen carefully. He said, as much as the Pharisees wanted to scrub their hands clean, they simply could not wash away the stain of their wicked hearts. As much as they clean themselves externally, they could not wash away the wicked, sinful hearts that they had. And I thought, that is really good. Because isn't empty religion exhausting? It's exhausting. We scrub and we scrub and we scrub and we think that we're clean when we're really just tired of scrubbing. And we look all clean and we look all shiny, but on the inside, we're exhausted. And we collapse. And we're a fake. We're a phony. What we should be doing is we should be collapsing on Jesus to wash us clean. Now when we think about, we think about the Christian life and we think about a life of sacrifice, right? We think about a life of dying to self and taking up our cross. But the reasons that we do those things isn't because they're fun, right? That's, that's not why we're in this, this thing. It's not because we're in it for fun, We do these things, we're compelled to do these things, we're drawn to do these things, we delight to do these things because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That's what we heard from Drew and Michael this morning. When they were away at camp and others, they've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I have no doubt they experience hypocrisy in the Christian church as kids, right? We all do. And as kids growing up, we experience that. And sometimes it takes that experience outside the normal walls of our lives to experience and taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. Because the yoke and the burden of Christ is easy and light, not exhausting. The opposite of that is religion. And Jesus has some very strong words for the religious people. He calls them hypocrites. He says in Mark chapter 7, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And just like the Pharisees, we're too sinful to follow the law. We are inherently too sinful to be able to to follow God's law because it's a matter of the heart, isn't it? 
Jesus taught about this when he talked about anger, right? Murder is not just the external act of killing someone. If you harbor anger in your heart, you've killed someone. You've murdered them. Right? Adultery isn't the physical act only. If you lust in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. It's a matter of what's going on inside of our hearts. God's law points us to something that's outside of ourselves to save us. It's a foreign righteousness. Paul says in Galatians that we're held captive under the law. That we're imprisoned by the law. The law is a schoolmaster, he says, and it's given to us until Christ would come in order that we would be justified not by the law, but by Jesus. He is the one who justifies. And as we read in the Gospel of Mark, time and time again, the religious leaders missed the Messiah. They missed the fact that Jesus, the only one that could heal them and clean them, was standing right in front of them. They missed it. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't miss Jesus. Don't toil at the table of empty religion. Come and feast at the abundant table of grace that Christ offers us. And then let that grace permeate your heart and your entire life. Now, the original intent of these, of these cleanliness laws were, were good. They had good purpose in them. They had two main reasons. One is to set apart the people of God, right? To identify them as the set-apart people of God and for God to say, you are my people, I am calling you to myself, and this is now what you are to look like. This is how you are to be. The second thing is it would restore a personal right standing with the people because they were unable to actually be good enough to enter into the presence of God. And so he had to set up a way through sacrifice and cleanliness laws to retain or to to get again right standing with God. And both of those have to do with holiness. And as we know, holiness is only possible through Jesus. Those laws were only ever meant as a foreshadowing to what Jesus would ultimately do on the cross. Jesus even said in in Matthew 5, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to what? I came to fulfill them. Jesus is our only hope. He is the only way. And the result of that is beautiful. It's a beautiful future grace, a future grace that we hope in, but also it's a grace that we have here in the present, here and now. Other than restoring our relationship with God, which is super significant, right? That's ultimately what what we rejoice in is this relationship that is restored to our creator. But other than that, the most beautiful thing about the gospel is that it doesn't separate God's people from other people. The gospel doesn't do that. We don't become monks and go off into monasteries. Well, some I guess do. But that's not the intent, right? Right? We are not to go off and live in monasteries. The beauty of the gospel is that it is personal, but it's not private. It's a personal faith. We are saved as individuals through Jesus Christ. We have personal encounters, but that is not to be kept to ourselves. It's not a private faith. We serve a sending God. God sends his people out and we are to go out and we are to rub shoulders with people who who look and dress and talk and act and believe and worship differently than we do. 
And the purpose of that is to proclaim the good news of the gospel to them and to tell them the only way to be clean and to be satisfied is through Jesus Christ, through confession and repentance and putting your faith in Jesus. Religious tradition cannot do that. And religious tradition does not define us as the people of God. Religious tradition does not define us as the people of God, and rules and laws are not what we're about. Unfortunately, sadly, in our Western culture, religious tradition, adherences to laws, is the very thing the world is identifying us with. But whose fault is that? Yeah, it's not, it's not the world's fault. It's our fault. The very thing that we are supposed to be identified with is what is missed. And it's our fault. The Bible says that they will know us by our love for one another. It doesn't say that they will know us by our moral or intellectual superiority. How does the world see you? How do they see you? We're defined by our identity in Jesus Christ, the one who took our place on the cross. And it's not simply that we're saved from hell, as we said, as glorious as that is. It's not just we're saved from that, but we're also saved to something, to right standing with God, but then also to a right relationship with one another. And through Jesus, we understand how God has created us to truly be. We are followers and disciples of him. We are servants of mankind, servants of the Most High God. We are ministers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors of righteousness. Now listen, words like followers and disciplers and servants and ministers and ambassadors should never shy away from ugliness and the messiness of people or issues in life. Does that make sense? If we're identified by those words, if that's true of us, Words like ambassadors, servants, ministered, followers, disciples. We should never shy away from the ugliness and the messiness of people and of this life. We are to embrace them. We are to engage them. We are to seek to redeem them through our witness in Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I'm not saying we're to agree with them. I'm not saying that we have to agree with everything that comes down the road. There are some things that need to be rejected. I will admit that. But I think that as a people of God, we are far too quick to reject and far too little do we actually seek to redeem because we don't want to be a little uncomfortable. Sometimes we have to be willing to get a little messy. We have to be willing to get our hands dirty. Jesse said something last week about Jesus. He said Jesus was a revolutionary. He came and he didn't separate himself from the unclean. He didn't force his disciples to wash their hands before they ate the bread in order to avoid uncleanliness or impurity. Jesus himself was clean. He ate with men who didn't wash their hands. Yet he was still clean. He was still righteous. He was still pure. And listen to what he said. He said, contact with the unclean didn't make Jesus unclean. Instead, it made the unclean whole. Amen? Contact with the unclean didn't make Jesus unclean. It made the unclean whole and complete. That's the Jesus we have to offer the world. That's what brings us to this morning in our passage in Mark. 
Now let's remember the circumstances that surrounds this gospel, surrounds this event, is that he's writing to Gentile believers in Rome. They were experiencing stressful times. They were, they were trying to live out their life, live out the gospel. Life was difficult. This was the time of Nero, who was a very wicked man in this time. He was doing horrible things to Christians, and there was a lot of pressure on these Roman Gentiles who Mark was writing to. And he was writing to them to care for them and to encourage them and to pastor them. And so here's the setting for us today as we, as we open up to, to these verses. Jesus and his disciples are once again, they're on the move. Jesus had been spending a lot of time around the Sea of Galilee. Well, it says in verse 24, now they're on the move. They're going up northwest of the Sea of Galilee, where they had been. They, they traveled up to the, to the region of Phoenicia, which, which is where the, the cities of Tyre and Sidon are located. This would have been, or this is in present-day Lebanon. It's along the Mediterranean coast, about 45 miles northwest of where, where they were hanging around the Sea of Galilee. Now, this area of the world was an area of extreme expression of Gentile paganism. It's the region that would have been the home of Jezebel. It was the source and the center of of Baal worship. It wasn't necessarily a place you would anticipate Jesus going to get a little rest and to do some teaching to his disciples. I'm sure there were other places that he could have gone, but that's not where he went. He went into this region of wickedness and pagan expression. And Mark is telling his readers, he's showing us how Jesus is number one on mission, which Jesus is always showing us how he is on mission, but he's also showing us the nature of the message that he has. And it's a message for the entire world. Because there's one body, there's one spirit, there's one hope, there's one Lord Jesus Christ, there's one faith, one baptism, there's one God and Father, of all, over all, through all, and in all. And those of us today who are Christians are the result of their faithfulness to the gospel. We know on this side of history that God's plan was always that the gospel was intended to go to the nations, right? We have some people that we know that have gone to the nations over in India. Mark's original readers in Rome, they would have been living out their life, right? Just like Acts 2. They were, they were devoted to Scripture. They were fellowshipping. They were breaking bread. They were praying. And God was no doubt adding to their numbers, right? It was a joy in the midst of trial. I think that's fair to say. Yes, there were trials, but there was a joy in the midst of the trial because of this hope that they had, this future and present grace that they had that was in Jesus Christ. He was saying, you Gentile Christians, you are an extension of God's massive plan of salvation. This is how I created you to be, he's telling them, and he's telling us as well. You are a plan of this that originated with my chosen people. You are to go to all the nations, even to the pagan areas of the world, Phoenicia, with the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, which is for everybody. The big picture, of course, goes back and was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah who said, I will give you, talking to the Israelites, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. He says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the world. God's plan was always to draw the Jewish people to himself first as a means of spreading the good news of Jesus and drawing others to him. 
The nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the people of God were never meant to be the ends of salvation, but they were meant to be the means of that salvation. And that's why Jesus says in in our verses today, in verse 27, he says this, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now we'll get to the reason of why Jesus calls this poor woman a dog in a minute, but, but the interpretive lens that we need to look at this through is found in the, the, the same account only that's found in Matthew. Don't turn to it, but this is what Jesus says. Before he tells her this, what the bread is for, it's not for the children, or it's not for the dogs, it's to the children first. Before that, in Matthew, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Messiah was sent for the Jews. Right? He was the king of the Jews. However, the gospel was never intended to terminate on the Jews, just like the gospel is never intended to terminate on us. It's personal, but it's not private. Yahweh was their personal one true God, but he was not their private God. He was and is the God of the world. And so the children in that verse that he tells her, that, that, that line that he quotes to her, uh, uh, that, that the children in that verse are the children of Israel. They're the Jews. And being fed first simply meant that, that the message, the good news of Jesus, the redemptive plan of salvation was to come to the Jews first and then to the nations. In going to Phoenicia... As Jesus was traveling up 45, 50 miles northwest with his disciples, going up and interacting with this particular woman, Jesus was breaking down barriers. He was breaking down barriers of geography. He was breaking down barriers of of ethnicity, of gender, of religion. And Mark's telling the first century readers, and he's telling us today to go and do likewise. The gospel is to go forth to those who are estranged and who are detached, right? Whether it's on the other side of the world or whether it's right next door to us. Because the deal is, more and more, the world is coming to our doors. More and more, we find the world coming to our doors. No no longer do we only have to go out, although we do, and we support that. And we need to be about that business. But the world is literally coming to our doors. The question is, what are we going to do with that? Do we become judgmental? Do we become reclusive? Do we become territorial? Do we become protective? Do we become safe? Do we become timid? Or do we say what Paul says in Romans 1, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. There needs to be a boldness about our faith. The world, church, the world is hurting and dying. Do we realize that? Do we realize that the world is hurting and dying? I realize that there is much pain in this room. I realize that. I affirm that. I know a lot of your stories. There's a lot of stuff happening. And it breaks our hearts. And we want to love you and shepherd you and pastor you through that because Jesus wants healing. But the world is hurting and dying and desperately in need of Jesus. And it's happening all around us. Literally. You guys received an email this last week. The neighbor of Tom and Karen Felgate, uh, Morley, is a Hindu from India. Morley's in his 40s, wife... Two boys, 15 and 10, and the Felgates have loved them well for 13 plus years as neighbors. 
share the gospel, just love them as Jesus. They're like family to them. And Karen had asked if we would send this email out because Morley has cancer. And, and he was in remission for a long time and came, uh, the cancer came back. He was down at Barnes Jewish and asked if we would, they specifically asked them if they would pray and specifically asked them to ask our church to pray. That's why that, that's why that email went out. And then Thursday night, I got a text late from Tom and said, hey, can you come, can you go with me tomorrow? They want a pastor to come out and pray with them. We walked down into the intensive care unit of Barnes Jewish Hospital, and what we found was a family who had mourned the death of Morley, who had just passed away, minutes before we got there. And they were mourning, and they had no hope, because they don't know Jesus. But here's the good news. They have neighbors who will continue to be faithful to witness and to love and to minister to a widow and her two boys. And God is opening up more more doors. Karen just told me this morning, more opportunities to witness and to be Jesus to these people. The world is literally coming and dying at our doors. What are we going to do with the message that we have? Are we going to treat it as personal? Are we going to treat it as private? Because people are dying all around us. Jesus didn't see the person before him as anything other than one who was created in the image of God and needed healing. That's how he saw this woman. That's how we need to see people. Nothing prevents someone from receiving merciful healing. Those who exercise humble faith will receive the bread of life. The faith that only comes from Jesus. So never set limits on the mercy of God because someone is different than you are. Never set limits on the mercy of God because someone is different than you are. I read this quote this week. Listen carefully. It says, the ancient world was rife with prejudice. We see that in Scripture. The issues and groups have changed, but the same bent towards prejudice grips a modern world. It strangles hopes for peace And it even, talking about prejudice, it even stifles interest among Christians to reach with the gospel those who are loathed and resented. Please, God, let that not be true of our church. Please, God, let that not be true of our church and let that not be true of the church. Sadly, that's what people are seeing today and it breaks my heart. So let's take a little bit closer look at this. Let's take a look at this woman in need. And again, in comparison to last week's story, two very different perspectives. Last week was a story about pride and hypocrisy that Jesus calls out. This week it's a story of faith rooted in the desperate condition of someone. These stories could not be more different. Jesus travels into the story, into the region of Phoenicia, and he's, he's attempting to get some rest and, and to get some, probably to get some concentrated time with his apostles. Um, and and the, the, the text says that he didn't want anybody to know that they were there. Yet this woman found him. And she had a, a daughter that was an unclean spirit. And in verse 25, uh, it says that she had heard of Jesus. In chapter 3 of Mark, we, we read that, that there was a big crowd following Jesus. And, and it says that people were coming to him from places like Galilee and Judea and, and Jerusalem and beyond the Jordan and from around the cities of Tyre and Sidon. So people were coming and they had interacted with Jesus. It's possible that this isn't the first time this woman had encountered Jesus in person. 
It's possible. At least she has she had heard of him. However, she had a lot going against her. First of all, she was a woman, which was not not a good thing in those days. That was not women were not not normally respected in those circles. She was a Syrophoenician. She was from a pagan idolatrous culture, and she was a Gentile, and not just a Gentile. She was a Canaanite. Matthew tells us. Now, remember, the Canaanites were supposed to be vanquished from the earth, right? They were supposed to be the the the, the, the land that Jesus that God gave to the Israelites was to be cleansed, and the Canaanites were to be expelled, exterminated. She wasn't even supposed to be alive. Her and her people were to have been wiped from the face of the earth. Yet in spite of all of this going against her, she knew that Jesus possessed the power to heal her daughter. And so she was begging Jesus to heal her. Now, Matthew, the parallel account that I mentioned, Matthew fills in a few gaps that Mark leaves out. Mark is very intentional, however, so they're not gaps. Mark is very intentional with who his audience is, and he's very intentional, as we said from the beginning of when we started preaching, Mark, of how he, is, how he edits his gospel. That's one of the compelling things about the gospel of Mark is how it's edited. However, there are some gaps that are filled in from Matthew that I want to tell you about. So if I say some things this morning that you're reading through Mark and you're like, it doesn't say that, it's because it's in Matthew. Because I want to give us a richer picture Not that Mark is devoid. But this woman is so distraught and she's so desperate that she's crying out to the Lord, have mercy on me. And it's a continual process with her. She's continuing to ask God to show mercy on her to the point that the disciples beg Jesus to send her away. They couldn't take it anymore. They were tired of her crying out and asking Jesus to heal her that the disciples were like, Jesus, just send her away. She's an annoyance. And it's interesting that we learn in Matthew's account that as she was doing this, as she was continually asking him for mercy, Jesus didn't even answer her. Not the picture that we typically think of Jesus. We don't think of him sitting there, standing there with his arms closed, with his nose looking down on this this woman who's a Syrophoenician, who's a Gentile, from this pagan country. We usually don't think of Jesus as being so harsh but he didn't answer her and when when he finally does say something to her he says i came for the lost sheep of israel which wasn't very helpful for her in fact i'm surprised she didn't just leave at that point but it only escalated her response she literally falls on her face and she says lord help me and jesus resists and that's when he says it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs and somehow, some way, this woman knew what he meant. Her theology was actually right. She understood what he meant by that. I've read that passage for years. I had no clue what it meant. She knew what that meant. Her desperate reply then was, Lord, like a little dog, I'll gladly take the crumbs that you have to offer. Begging continually, Jesus, I get it, but I need this. I want this. I'll take whatever you can give me. And Jesus then responds, and he says, Woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Your daughter is now healed. Jesus didn't even need to go to wherever she was, right? He could just heal her because he is Lord of all. He is the creator and the sustainer of life. There are several things that we learn from this. 
And, and I struggled, to be honest. I was telling Jesse beforehand. I struggled to, um, to, to discover why Mark didn't provide the details that Matthew provided. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. I, I, I didn't want to necessarily bring Matthew into the picture because we do want to stay faithful to what Mark has uniquely as the gospel. But, but um, I, I couldn't, I, everything I read, everything I studied brought it back to Matthew and filled in gaps with Matthew. So I thought, well, if they can do it, I can do it too. So I paint outside the lines a little bit here, uh, but it's for the purpose of highlighting this woman's persistent determination, her utter humility in the face of refusal by Jesus. She's being refused by the Savior, seemingly, and yet she has this determination and this humility in the face of refusal, and that's key. And why is that key? Well, I want you to think for a moment about what's important to you. What satisfies your deepest longing? Now, don't say Jesus. We all know that's the right answer, right? But I'm not allowing that answer this morning yet. What is it that actually is your functional savior? Right? That could be anything. Right? We've, we've talked about idolatry here before. Right? For, for a lot of us, we mention things like family, jobs, spouse, the, the want of a spouse, money. But, but what about the things that are a little bit more subtle? Right? Uh, things, um, things, well, in, in our culture where we live, right, we, are in, we are in this little West County bubble. I know not everybody lives in West County, but you're close enough if you don't live here. We live in this, in this very comfortable setting, and so things are important to us like ease, things that aren't as easy to identify. Things like ease and comfort and safety and good standing and status. What about respect? Anyone else cling to the idol of respect? I hang on to that idol of respect like it's the last thing on earth at times. I hug that thing and I embrace that thing called respect like it is my functional savior. Does anybody else struggle with that? Respect is a big one. We are so easily offended, are we not? We have this you owe me attitude. There's a name for it. It's called pride. It's called pride. Just call it what it is. Pride. And we don't need to tease this out a lot, do we? I don't think that we need to give examples from my life or others' lives of how we're prideful people. But if anyone has an issue with thinking they're too humble, that automatically disqualifies you. Right? That there points to the fact that you're prideful. But if you have problems picking out pride in your life, let's go grab coffee and we can just point each out, point pride out in each other's life. And I say that with a little bit of, of tongue in cheek because we need to have people in our lives that know us well enough to point pride out. We need that in our lives. That is why we do what we do here. That's why we believe in community. That's why we believe in discipleship. We believe in the biblical one another's. So it's pride, and it has to be dealt with. God opposes the proud. There's not much you read of in Scripture that God actually actively opposes. Pride is one of them. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. That's James 4. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The woman knows that she's not worthy of what Jesus can offer. She knows her pedigree better than anyone except for Jesus. She readily accepts. She embraces the truth that she is a Gentile dog. She's okay with that. There's no pride in this woman. 
Now the term dog, many of you, you may know this, was a derogatory term for Gentiles that the Jews used for them. Dogs in those days would roam the landscape. They were scavengers. They'd scavenge for food. They were nasty, ugly, mangy creatures. Uh, they were seen as something that was outside the household unit. They would roam the countryside. You didn't see them a lot in homes. This is how the Jews treated the Gentiles, as people who were outside the covenant promises of God, just like the dogs were outside the realm of cities. They were dogs unworthy of God's love and salvation, were the Gentiles. The Jews were the chosen people of God, not the Gentile dogs. If you're standing before Jesus and he says this to you, how would you take this comment? Would you be offended by what he said? If someone shows us the slightest disrespect today, what do we do? I don't have to take that. I don't have to take that service. That barista wasn't nice to me. I'll take my, I'll take my business somewhere else. Right? Food was cold, didn't come out on time. I'm out of here. I'll go somewhere else. I don't deserve that. I deserve better than that. Really? You deserve better than that? That's how we, that's how we act. That's how we think. We think we deserve better than that. I'm not saying that it's wrong to have reasonable expectations. I understand giving our hard-earned money that's not ours to begin with, it's God's, but I understand giving it and and wanting to get something back of value. That's not an unreasonable thing. It's the false indignation that's a problem. It's the false indignation that gets me. You realize that just because you can buy something or you can afford something doesn't mean you deserve it. You realize that, right? Just because you can buy it, don't mean you deserve it. But we think we do. Think about our salvation. That's something that is freely given. It's precious and priceless, and we do not deserve that. Everything else should flow from that truth in our lives. Everything else should flow from the fact that our, if we're a Christian, our salvation is a free gift of God that drives humility. Everything else in our lives flows from that truth, from the way that we love our spouse, parent our children, to the way that we deal with one another, to the way that we work, live, play, you name it. God opposes opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Our pride kicks in quickly and prevents us from things. It prevents us from asking for help, right? Let alone give someone a second chance. Pride. And we do it in our relationships all of the time. But this woman has no pride, does she? She weeps at the feet of her Savior. And she's saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Help me, Lord. Help me. Give me the scraps. Give me the crumbs. I'll gladly take them. This woman knows that even the crumbs from Jesus' table provides more nourishment than the world could ever offer. There's more nourishment in the crumbs of Jesus than any food you can get at Whole Foods or anywhere else. We know that even a touch of the hem of Jesus' robe will heal, will dry up the blood of the woman who was bleeding. That's how powerful Jesus is. Even touching his garments will heal. What about Jesus' response? It appears, as we said, that he's, he's heartless towards this woman. We know better than that, don't we? We know the nature, the character of nature of this humble servant, Jesus Christ. But it appears that he is heartless to this woman. He, he, calls, her, he calls her a dog. And we just described how Gentiles were, Gentiles were referred to as dogs 
by, by the Jewish people. Well, there, were, there are two words in the Greek language for dog. One is, is the, the, the word that I just, or the description that I just, I didn't write the, what the actual Greek words are, but, but one is the dog I described, the mangy, scavenger, street dog, right? Roaming the streets, roaming the, the countryside. The, the word Jesus uses is not that Greek word. It's a different Greek word that refers to a diminutive dog, more of a house pet. Right? More of a, of a dog that you would find inside a home. A dog that would be under the table. A dog that would know that sooner or later, scraps will fall because the children are getting fed first and I'll be, it'll be okay for me to eat that. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of dog that Jesus was talking about. If you've been to my house for, for at any time, you've seen my dog, Dakota, my little one-eyed dog. She'll sidle on up right where the dishwasher is if we're serving food from the, from the counter there, just waiting for something to fall. Just waiting. And if, and if you've been to my house long enough and you're, you're eating and you have a plate down, she'll grab it. She'll get it. She's not like Mabel. I don't want to compare my dog to Mabel. Ma- I'm sorry, Mabel's just wicked. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm a little sorry. I had to do that. But that's the picture we get. That's the picture Jesus gets is of the dog that's taking the scraps in the household. It's a dog that is inside the household, right? Under the table. And this woman understands this and she accepts it. She has such great faith that she understands the unique nature of God's revelation to Israel. She understands it. She's a Gentile, pagan, idolatry woman. And she gets all of that. She gets the uniqueness of the revelation, God's revelation to Israel. And she appreciates it, and she trusts that it is super abundant in her life. She trusts that it is, is, it's super abundant enough to spill over into her life and her people's life and her daughter's life who is possessed by the demon. She gets that. She believes that. The gospel, Mark is telling us, is much bigger than we realize. I believe that's what he's communicating to these people, the Roman Gentiles in the Roman church. I believe that's what he's communicating to us today. It's a huge gospel. We understand that to a degree. If you look on a map, right, we've encouraged you to before, look at a map of where we're at in, in, the, in the gospel of Mark, in the region of, of Galilee and where he's traveling along. If you look at that small little area on the map where Jesus is traveling all around there, and then you see up here on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea is where Tyre and Sidon is where he is. And then you look and flip over and look at the missionary journeys of Paul, and there's this big area over here where God has just blown the world up with the gospel beautiful. And that's just a little portion of where the gospel has gone now. God is doing that. She understood this. It's a big, big world, but we have a big God. But back in the day, the thought that the gospel would extend to the Gentiles was crazy talk. It was absolutely crazy. There's no way that could possibly happen. No way. Romans says that they were Israelites, the Jews. They're Israelites. And to them belonged the adoption. To them belong the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law. To the Jews belongs the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. There's no way salvation is coming to them. And in the very next sentence, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all. The gospel is to go to the world. This is the one true God with the one true gospel that is to go to the entire world world and we get to participate in that 
And some of them are coming to our doors. This is a glorious God with a magnificent plan of salvation. And as big and as profound as that God is and that plan is, it begins with utter lowliness and humility. First from Jesus, who obediently entered into the world as a helpless little baby. And he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. He took the form of a slave. And that's the kind of profound humility that we are to have. The word doulos is bondservant. Paul calls himself a doulos, a bondservant to Jesus. We are a slave to Jesus. We are a servant to mankind. He says, Jesus in 1045 of Mark, he says, the Son of God came to serve, not to be served. Saving faith as modeled by this woman is that type of faith. It's a humble faith. It's a persistent faith. It's a a, a compelling faith that continues to ask Jesus for mercy. She cries out to mercy. It's a beatitude faith. faith. It's it's a faith uh, that is poor in spirit that will see the kingdom of heaven. It is a faith that mourns, that will be comforted. It is a faith that is meek, that will inherit the earth. It is a faith that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. You can can see it, and you can hear it, you can feel it in this account. This woman has a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, and in the Beatitude it says you will be satisfied if you hunger and you thirst for that righteousness. Only Jesus will satisfy that. The last words of Martin Luther are said to have been, we are beggars. This is true. That's the last words that came out of his mouth before he died. Luther knew that God demands a righteousness that we cannot produce. And if we could, then it wouldn't be called grace. All we can do is humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And the very humility that's required is itself a gift of God. So our question this morning, what we draw out of this is, where do you stand in all of this? Where do you stand in all this? Are you a beggar? Are you a hypocrite? Because those are the the options. These two stories, like I said, are polar opposites of one another. Are we a pharisaical hypocrite in the story that Jesse told us last week and showed us the gospel in that? Or are we a beggar? Seriously, answer, ask and answer that question. Do people see you? How, do the, how does the world see you? Ask yourself that. Do they see you as this buttoned up, prim, and proper person? Right? This, this rule follower. By the way, there's nothing wrong with following rules. I'm a rule follower. People who know me know that. But I let that define me way too much. So people will look at me and they won't see grace. They see all law, all justice. How do people see you? Jesus calls that type of righteousness wickedness. Does the world see you as that? Or does the world see you as one who is willing to grovel in the dust, begging for scraps? Let's be honest. Those are the people we walk right by when we go down to a ball game. We don't see them a lot out here. They're here. Some of us have interacted with them before. 
But those are the people groveling and begging that we look down our noses at and we continue to walk on by. Very few of us will engage them. How does the world see you? The Pharisee in you is not humble. The Syrophoenician woman crying at the feet of Jesus, pleading for mercy and begging for crumbs. Is that how the world sees you? Here's the thing. Praise God. We don't just get the crumbs. We get the abundant life that Jesus has to offer. He gives us more than we could possibly need. And that should overflow from us. It should just emanate from our very veins and pores. It should be something that people see us. Saving faith provides a continual posture of humility before a holy God. So we see this in the woman. We see a type of faith that I think that Mark wants us to see fleshed out a little bit more in Matthew. We see this persistent, humble faith. And we have to ask ourselves, are we the beggar or are we the hypocrite? I want you to take that away today. And I want you to wrestle with how does the world see you? I'm not talking about, about being identi- or, or finding your identity in what the world thinks of you. But you can do the hard work of praying and asking God to reveal in your heart, what, is the, what, is, what, what am I giving the world? What are they seeing? Are they seeing somebody that's religious? By the way, if someone calls you religious, don't take that as something good. I think it's an insult. Because what they're seeing are the things you do. They're not actually seeing the things you are. So I don't take that as a, as a... When I hear someone thinks of someone else as religious, I don't take that as a compliment. They may mean it as a compliment, but I think if they understood what it meant, I don't think that they would, because Jesus calls that hypocrisy. So that is our takeaway. Are you a hypocrite? Are you a beggar? Is this real for you? Or are we a poser? Are we buttoning up, tying the tie not getting the tattoos, combing the hair, cutting the hair, shaving the beards, whatever it is, whatever the world sees us as good Christians. Are we doing that? Are we a humble beggar at the feet of Jesus asking for mercy and forgiveness? Let's pray. Lord, Psalm 51 says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Father, do the work in our hearts. Earlier when Drew said that he prayed for God to break him, that's that's a prayer you will answer. Lord, may we be bold enough to pray that, that you you would break us knowing that Jesus will catch us. He will heal us. He will restore us. And He will compel us to love and to serve and to sacrifice and to die to ourselves daily and to be to the world what the world does not typically see. Lord, may we be faithful people to Your Gospel, faithful servants of our Lord and Jesus. And may we love people with a tender heart. May we not be offensive, Lord. The gospel will offend, but may our actions not offend. May we be known as a people who love and who care. May we do this for your glory, for your honor, and in the name of Jesus. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.